Sowing season is here. What seeds will you be sowing? Maybe vegetables, herbs, flowers, cover crops, microgreens, or seeds for sprouting? Well, whatever kind of seed you are after, True Leaf Market has you covered. True Leaf Market's been supplying superb seed since 1974. And you can expect swift delivery and a fantastic choice of crops to grow. Check out trueleafmarket.com for a superb selection of seeds, plus tons of free advice, including their downloadable guides to microgreens, herb growing and more. You can get $10 off at trueleafmarket.com now when you spend $50 using code ONTHELEDGE10. That's $10 off with code ONTHELEDGE10. Welcome to On The Ledge, episode 262. I'm your host, Jane Perrone. You're welcome. Come in. Have a feel of my plants. In this episode, I'm answering a question about cane begonias and reading an extract from my book, Legends of the Leaf, plus telling you about some of the amazing things I learned about houseplants in the popular press when writing the book. And you may or may not know that this is my second book. My first book was called The Allotment Keeper's Handbook and that came out in 2008. I've recently made that into an audiobook which you can get from Audible and from my website and various other audiobook sellers. And I got a lovely email from Mark, who wrote a quick note to let you know we have really enjoyed your Allotment Keeper's Handbook. As well as the audiobook, we dug out a copy of the book from the library. In our six year as plot holders, we couldn't fault anything you said. All good advice. We enjoyed your humorous observations, in particular, the description of your allotment site plan, which sounds just like ours, a work of fiction. Good luck with your new houseplant book, too, which we are looking forward to reading. Now that was lovely to hear. Thank you very much. And I'd encourage anyone who has read the audiobook to go and leave a review uh, on Amazon or on Audible or wherever you've listened, because it really helps to encourage people to make that purchase. And maybe if you've run through all the episodes of On The Ledge and you still haven't got enough of the sound of my voice, that might be a way of adding to your peroniness. Did I just say that? I think I did. Maybe you're sick of hearing about Legends of the Leaf. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But for those of you who are perhaps new to On the Ledge, let me explain about my new book, Legends of the Leaf. The subtitle is uh, Unearthing the Secrets to... What is the actual subtitle? We went through so many versions. Unearthing the secrets to help your plants thrive. There we go. I need to get that in my brain. And this is a book that profiles 25 iconic houseplants and tells their stories in depth. Plus, there's a care guide for each of these species and a beautiful 
bespoke illustration by the wonderful illustrator Helen Entwistle. The book has been funded by Unbound, so it's a crowdfunding process, which means it's taken a bit longer to get into your hands. If you've pre-ordered a copy via my publisher Unbound as part of the crowdfunding stage, then either your book will have been dispatched to you or it will be coming imminently as I speak on April the 14th, 2023. I think the signed copies are going out now. So it should be landing on doorsteps across the world right now. Uh, If you don't have your copy and you've pledged or you haven't had any paperwork, please do get in touch with support at unbound.com and they can help you out. And if I can help in any way, do let me know. If you haven't gone that route and you want to pre-order the book, that's absolutely fine too. All the information is at legendsoftheleafbook.com. That's legendsoftheleafbook.com. And you'll find places to buy the book across the globe and also information about the illustrations and so on. So in this week's show, I'm going to read you an extract, which is the introduction, which sets the scene for the rest of the book, talks a little bit about colonial botany and some of the things I've tried to cover in this work. So I hope you'll enjoy this introduction and it'll whet your appetite for the real thing. I've already had a little bit of feedback from people who have received the book and it's gone down really well. You seem to be really enjoying it, but I'd love to know if you do get your copy and if you've got your copy now, please, please, please put it on social media, snap a picture of it with your houseplants. Let me know what's blown your mind, what species you particularly love, which illustrations you particularly love. It really helps to spread the word about the book. And I would really love you to do that. So yeah, please do let me know what you think. And uh, once the time comes, leave a review on your bookstore of choice. Right, without any further ado, let's get stuck into this introduction. When did you first get into plants? Visitors to my home often ask usually while disentangling a wayward vine from their hair. The truth is this. I can't remember when plants weren't a source of curiosity and satisfaction in my life. I call it wearing my plant glasses. No wispy weed growing in the pavement. No climber romping over a fence. No flower pressed against the glass of a greenhouse is too insignificant to escape my glance. But my heart really lies with houseplants. Searching for the roots of my obsession takes me back to primary school. In the library, the shelves were draped in yellowing spider plants. My friend Ruth and I must have shown some kind of flair for horticulture, as we were let out of lessons to water these plants back to life. It may have stunted my understanding of arithmetic, but it did set me up for a lifetime of love for gardening. In turn, the spider plants responded to our care by producing many babies at the ends of long stalks I later learned to call inflorescences. I started to build my own plant collection, using my pocket money to buy fat-bodied cacti whose sudden spectacular flowers made me gasp. Forty years on, and my love affair has not abated, but it feels as if everyone else has joined the party. The distinctive leaves of the Swiss cheese plant are all over Instagram and snake plants are on sale everywhere from Urban Outfitters to Tesco. 
There are many books on houseplants, covering everything from propagation to styling, and yet most of them remain silent on the matter of where houseplants actually come from, how they've evolved to thrive in those landscapes, and how they have found their way into our homes. Filling in these rich backstories links our specimens to history, culture, botany and horticulture. More than that, it deepens our understanding of their needs. We cannot get houseplants into focus without this context. Just what makes a houseplant iconic? I selected plants that would be instantly recognisable to most people, whether houseplant obsessed or not. Species found growing on windowsills in almost every country around the world and repeatedly referenced in art and culture from paintings to films. This is by no means a definitive list. I may have excluded your favourite species. Apologies. But I hope this book will inspire you to dig deeper into your chosen plants' stories too. Many times in the course of this book you will find the words, we don't know. While botany has uncovered some of the mysterious workings of leaves and flowers, houseplant species have often been overlooked by scientists. Most research has focused on the species that provide us with food and medicine. This is unfortunate, because we are only now discovering some of the potential practical applications of these plants, from decontaminating polluted soil to helping us understand how to collect water in arid landscapes. One of my greatest challenges was delving beneath and beyond the narrative of colonial botany. The white men who fanned out across the globe in the 18th and 19th centuries to capture, categorise and exploit plants and people. In an attempt to discover how indigenous people understood and used these species. Much of this information has been erased or is still viewed through the lens of structural racism. And while the white male plant hunters who risk their lives to track down new species are celebrated, the indigenous people and enslaved people who carried their bags, cooked their food and shared with them a rich plant knowledge almost always remain nameless. They did not and do not receive the same accolades and financial rewards and many of them died horrible deaths in pursuit of plants. I hope that by understanding the histories of houseplants and recognising the sacrifices of the people who were caught up in the damage done by colonial botany, we can put a different kind of value on the things we grow and look at plants anew. With respect, deeper insight and an even greater passion. So, put on your plant glasses and let's discover the incredible stories our houseplants have to tell. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. As you can imagine, the book involved an awful lot of research, looking at things like scientific papers, old catalogues from nurseries, and what else did I look at? Um, or think, well, books from 
you know, the last decade and way before that. And there was a lot of research that went into doing this book. But the most fun I had was looking through newspaper archives in search of articles about the plants in the book. And this is what I want to share with you in today's episode. And one of the richest chapters in terms of newspaper archives was Monstra Deliciosa, because of course, there uh, is such a huge enthusiasm for this plant for many, many years. And one of the things that I found fascinating was the fact that from the late 1890s, people in the UK were eating Monstra Deliciosa fruits. Now, in 1898, I'm not saying this was widespread. There's a report that uh, people gathered at the Botanic Gardens in London, which I guess I'm re- is referring to Kew, and they sampled Monstra Deliciosa fruit for the first time. But I also found several reports dating from December 1912 telling me that Covent Garden Market in London had for the first time stocked a new tropical fruit from Madeira that was grown in Madeira and that was the fruit of the Monstra Deliciosa. And so this was only, what, 14 years after the fruit was very first really being um, tried, as far as I can tell, this fruit is being imported as an edible crop into the UK at Covent Garden Market. And the flavour is described as being a custard apple in the shape of a cucumber. And this was selling for one shilling sixpence. So how amazing. I found that report in several newspapers. So it was obviously news that people were interested in. And then we scroll forward to the 1930s, where there was a piece I found which was talking about the elongated pine cone of the ceremony and talking about how you could eat this as a fruity breakfast. And they cost, uh, I think it was six pence at that time. Uh, So again, uh, widely available enough that people would be talking about them in this rather... (laughs) rather, well, scary in a way, woman's page of the newspaper, which is full of, you know, um, fashion advice and very lightweight news. Um, (laughs) There we go. That was how things were back then. But don't think that the ceremony was just available in London. I did find an advert for a greengrocer in Hull that was stocking Monstra Deliciosa fruits uh, listed among various other fruits, um, rare fruits like mangoes and medlars. And this was in 1922. As I say, they were available in this Hull greengrocers. So that was fascinating to me to think that you could go to these places and buy Montre Deliciosa fruit. I certainly don't know of anywhere in the UK to get this today. Maybe you could get it in Covent Garden Market. I haven't been for many years, but I'd be interested to know if anyone has seen it for sale in the UK. And I think the story is probably quite similar in America, possibly more available in places like Florida where this plant can grow wild. But I did find a report um, from the 1980s of Monstra Deliciosa being available at Balducci's, which is a Sixth Avenue kind of deli. I think Balducci's still exists, but I don't think it's on the same site anymore. And you could buy Monstra Deliciosa uh, for $3.98 cents each. So that really fascinated me to read that people were eating Monstro Deliciosa fruit, um, perhaps in a more widespread way than we do today. 
and wondering why perhaps it never became a fruit that is widely eaten in the same way as other tropical fruit like mangoes and avocados. And I think the main reason is it's got a really long period of maturation. It takes about 12 months to mature. And the other aspect being that the fruit has to be perfectly ripe in order to be eaten because if you eat it when it's not totally ripe it can cause your mouth to tingle or worse than that you can have quite an allergic reaction which is due to the calcium oxalate crystals in the fruit which give you that sort of tingly feeling they tend to um, ease off as the fruit ripens but they can still make your lips and mouth tingle um sometimes people's sensitivity is greater than others. So yeah, you've got to get that timing right. And I imagine that's probably the reason why the fruit has never become as popular as some of its other tropical counterparts. But I just loved delving into this world of newspaper archives. And the other thing I found in the newspaper archives was a report from a UK newspaper in 1972 confirming that the Swiss cheese plant variegated form had won an RHS AGM, which stands for Award of Garden Merit. Now, the RHS does a lot of plant trials, testing out different species and varieties and cultivars to find out which they consider to be the best. And back in 1972, they were obviously trying out uh, Monstra Deliciosa variegated form, which I guess we'd call Albo variegata these days. So, I'm going to contact the RHS and see if I can find any more information about this trial and what, who did it and what they thought and so on. I'm going to dig back in the archives for that too, because I'd love to know that. And one of the things it says in the article is this plant is suitable for modern decor, which kind of made me laugh because obviously, you know, this was 1972. We think we're so terribly up to date, but of course this plant was already being grown in houses and, you know, it's nothing new. And sneak peek, I am going to be doing more on RHS plant trials in the future on the show because I've been asked to take part in the RHS trial of Tillandsias. So yeah, I'm going to be getting involved in that and finding out what RHS trials are all about and bringing that to you, which will be exciting. Now, I also promised you a fact from the book for every week of the show leading up to the launch. And this week's Fact concerns Zamiococcus zamifolia, the last plant in the book, the ZZ plant or the emerald gem, as many other names too. And the fact I'd like to share with you about this plant concerns one of its incredible superpowers. It's an aroid, a member of the Araceae family. So in the same family as the Swiss cheese plant, Monstra Deliciosa, funnily enough. But it grows in places like Tanzania and Kenya and it has to cope with boom and bust cycles in terms of water. It can deal with quite a lot of moisture, but it can also deal with drought. And it deals with drought by having that sort of rather potato-y looking uh, rhizome that it grows from. But it has another tactic as well. So those meaty stems with leaflets all along them, in times of drought, those leaflets just fall off. The plant just becomes a load of stems, effectively, uh, and that's how it saves water. And if conditions improve, the plant 
can then reproduce because those leaflets have the unique skill amongst the aroids of being able to propagate themselves root. And in fact, they grow a little mini rhizome at the bottom of the leaflet and that turns into a new plant so the plant can clump and spread to a new area. So I think that's pretty amazing. It's it's a bit of a, an oddball aroid, the Zamiococcus, and there's lots more about that in the chapter on this plant. And I'd love you to read it and let me know what you think. Well, that's all about Legends of the Leaf for this week. I will have an interview with my illustrator, Helen Entwistle, coming up next week where we go into the detail about the artistic process and how we collaborated. And that's really fun. So we'll have that next week. But now it's time to move on to question of the week. And this one comes from Baz and concerns pruning a cane begonia. Now, I've had actually had a question from Kelly, my assistant, about this very same thing as well. And it's something I've been doing recently. So it seemed an apposite moment to talk about it, particularly as here in the UK right now, it's spring and it's a good time to get propagating. So Baz tells me that... Uh, It's one belonging to Bass's mum and was passed on by uh, Bass's late grandmother through cuttings. And then they inherited the specimen after she passed away. And it's been pruned many times, but now it's in desperate need of pruning. Bass says the stems are long, unwieldy and bare. It only has leaves on the outer tips. However, it's in flower. And Bass is wondering, should we wait to cut it back and propagate the cuttings until it finishes flowering or can we go ahead regardless? So I'll put a picture of this in the show notes. It does have some beautiful flowers on it, but it is rather threadbare. It's what we call in the business of gardening having bare legs. (laughs) So it's got all these leafless stems, which obviously in a cane begonia can be quite long. So this is something that's fairly common to cane begonias, particularly as they get older, they lose those lower leaves. They can also drop them when they're stressed or, you know, particularly when they've got too much water around them. But sometimes they just do it through age. And, you know, as Bess has already said, the key is keeping them cut back and then you can root those cuttings and put them back in the pot to have a more bushier effect. But do you do it when the flowers are on? Well, traditionally, the answer would be no. Wait until those flowers have finished and then propagate. Now, I suspect that you will probably find that cutting will still root, even if you cut it off while it's flowering. Then again, you don't get to enjoy the flowers. Um, I don't think cane begonia flowers are tremendously long-lived. I think you'll probably get about three weeks out of them and then they'll drop off. I think in that case, I would just wait until that flowering has finished and then do your propagation. And if you want to avoid getting in this situation again, the best thing to do is just pinch out the tips of um, the longest and lankiest canes as you go along. And that will stimulate the plant to produce more growth at the bottom. And in terms of what you do with the stem cuttings, my method is very, very simple. Get a cutting that's between about, well, usually about two nodes. You can make it longer if you like um, and stick it in a glass of water or I've got a couple in a milk bottle at the moment. Um, You can put them in um, some damp perlite. That works just as well. Either will work. They do root very easily. And then you can just pop them back into the pot or you can start a separate plant. One thing to say about cutting begonia um, cuttings off the main plant is 
they don't exactly make the plant bush out when you take that cutting. What happens is you get, generally you get one side, a bud one side will develop. So it kind of gives you this sort of, I can't describe it, sort of Lego-like effect of the plant kind of rick racking up. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily make that particular stem bush out, but cutting that stem, as I say, should produce new shoots from the bottom. And cane begonias, um, are worth keeping compact because they can get very tall and leggy and heavy. And I did I did note actually looking at the American Begonia Society website on cane begonias recently um, that they suggest that you can give them a slightly heavier substrate than other types of begonias because of the size of them and the fact that you you've got this growth that's huge. So that's worth bearing in mind when you're repotting. So I would wait a few weeks, Baz, and let those flowers uh, do their thing and then take the cuttings. It is best practice not to take cuttings of flowering stems, but sometimes it's unavoidable. And in this case, I think it'll be fine. The main thing is, as I say, in the future to just little and often pinching out those stems to get that new growth going. Well, I hope that helps, Baz. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, you can drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. And just catching up on a previous Q&A, do you remember Penelope's jade plant, which we talked about, which had basically gone very mushy? Well, Penelope got in touch to say that the plant has been brought back from the brink. If you want to hear the original question, it's in episode 251, but I'm glad to say it has started re-sprouting. So well done, Penelope. That's great news. And please, if you've got an update on your plant that I've helped you out with, do let me know because I love to hear those updates. Well, that's all for this week's show. I do hope that you have a fabulous week and that an exciting houseplant book drops into your mailbox or onto your doormat this week for you to enjoy. Bye! you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Kids by Komiku, and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. The ad music is Candlelight by Jazar. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.